When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Everything is Black and White podcast, brought to you by Chronicle Live, bringing you the latest insight on everything to do with Newcastle United. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or most podcast providers. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Musgrove, joined here by Kieran Kelly and Ian Murta, who works for The Express, uh, The Star, Our Mirror titles, and also used to work for here yeah, for The Journal and Chrome. Yes, indeed. Uh... 20 years ago, when uh, when Bobby Robson was unveiled as manager, I was a uh, uh, chief football correspondent for the Journal. And we will get on to that 20-year anniversary of Sir Bobby's appointment as Newcastle Night Manager. But first, we're going to talk about uh, another man, another former Newcastle man, who doesn't have the same affection um, as Sir Bobby does with Newcastle United fans, and that's Michael Owen. Not quite. Um, we're going to talk about various things, obviously, with the international break here, but we're going to start with Michael Owen and his autobiography, has been released today, his second autobiography. I believe the, the other one only sold around 50,000 copies. Um, so I made a remark that St. James Park obviously holds 52,000. Well, not against Watford, but um, we've all read bits and bobs yeah. of it, serialised it in various titles. Your your initial reaction to, to, to what you've you've read of Michael Owen's autobiography? Look, it's it's riveting reason, uh, riveting reading for all all the wrong reasons. You know, Newcastle fans will justifiably be up in arms. A certain toon legend is certainly up in arms with a, a Twitter spat with his uh, former teammate. The sad thing about it, Andrew, though, I remember the press conference when uh, Michael Owen joined Newcastle, and it was very very similar to Alan Shearer's. The whole of the Leeser's end was full of fans. The club decided to, to stage manage this huge press conference it was delayed until a lunchtime for office workers to go in <laughs> and we all knew that it wasn't his first choice club that he wanted to go back to Liverpool had he gone back to Liverpool everyone would have forgiven him after all all he'd have done would have done been what Alan Shearer had done a few years before listen to his heart rather than his head but he was moved on that day he was staggered by the affection that was shown to him but, you know, in the subsequent years, he just never repaid that. Newcastle fans, they, they, they wanted a new hero. I go back to, we all knew that Alan Shearer was due to retire that, that summer and was persuaded, I think by Graeme Souness, to, to stay on for another year. Mm-hmm. And I remember when the Michael Owen rumours first started, you know, Fred, Freddie Shepherd, he wouldn't confirm or deny, but I remember ringing Freddie, God rest his soul, uh, a day or two before the press conference and I remember, what he said to me he said look he said all year people have been saying what are you going to do when Alan Shearer retires what are you going to do who's going to replace him and he, he thought he'd pulled off a masterstroke by bringing in the replacement a year early to play alongside Shearer and at the time it did make sense you know the pressure wouldn't have been on him quite as much despite the money being paid and the two of them were England partners and it it did look like a match made in heaven but obviously it never worked out that way did it now you mentioned there twitter spat that's between 
Alan Shearer and Michael yep. Owen. There's been a bit of fallout, and we'll get on to what Michael Owen has written about uh, Alan Shearer in his book. But we'll start with um, the bit about him admitting that he didn't want to move to Newcastle, um, and that he felt it was a step down. Downward step is actually what he says. Kieran, um, Michael Owen has sold this book on being honest. That, that has been the, the tagline. No, it's, it's about honesty. Um, and, and I don't think actually that that bit about him not wanting to join Newcastle is, is any big secret. No, I think the fans have long suspected and anticipated he was going to say something similar. I think what struck me really is we've kind of got used to Owen as maybe a bit of a bland character when he's in front of the camera over the years. Someone who's, you know, always been quite guarded and with this book he's been anthem but I think he's been so keen to put his side out there and you have to say he's done that um, but you know the, a lot of the things he says in there have, have rubbed up Newcastle fans the wrong way to say it's not a big club when he joined particularly at that time he joined when the club had had you know decent runs in Europe in the previous years I think is, is unfair sure yeah you can't really compare Newcastle to Real Madrid where he just left but um, it, it, it leave, it's it's almost just opening up old wounds again isn't it because um, Owen to the current Newcastle story has no real relevancy but this has just put him front and centre again and why we're expecting the international break maybe to be one of reflection on what's going on on the field this is the big story and um, yeah I, I think it's it's been possibly more explosive than, than most people expected he makes the point that Newcastle isn't a big club yet. He seems to be selling the book on the back <laughs> of Newcastle United. Fair point. What is a big club? I mean, with the best will in the world, Newcastle is not as big as Real Madrid. Right. And it's not as big as big as Liverpool these days. They, they're European champions, of course. But uh, don't pretend it's not a big club. You know, 52,000, there'll be thousands listening to this podcast. Newcastle at that time was spending millions you know, Freddie Shepard, for all his faults, he was very much a populist. He wanted to please the fans. And, yeah. you know, he loved these these bouquet, uh, bouquet signings. And it, it was wonderful for, for the region. OK, when Alan Shearer came in 96, it was to win the title for Newcastle. And everyone thought it was the missing piece in the jigsaw. It wasn't quite the same in, in 2005 2000, when, uh, when Michael Owen came. But, you know, how many other clubs would have had a would have had 10,000 fans filling the Lisa's end to uh, to greet a signing. Not many, not many at all. And the money he was on at the time, you know, I think he, he says it was 120k. Yeah. I think most people thought it was 110. I know it's only a small difference, but not many clubs would have been prepared to pay that for, for a player with his injury record as much as his great goal-scoring record. So I, I think that also is one to... To kind yeah, of throw think, back at him, isn't it? I think the final <laughs> negotiations were conducted in Midford Hall, just, <laughs> right. just just near Morpeth, and the night was happening, and there were rumours coming out that the deal wouldn't go through. He was having second thoughts. There were rumours Liverpool had come back in for him. I suspect that extra ten thousand a week was maybe <laughs> was maybe Freddie's trump card. Look, we'll give you another. To just sign that piece of paper, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it is a shame it's it's ended this week because I remember yeah. being in the stands as a, as yeah. a young lad and he, that buzz of getting this world record. Uh, club record signing um, yeah shame it's ended this way and a shame that we're also seeing uh, Alan Shearer and Mike Lone having a bit of a spot on Twitter mm. um, I mean Alan is probably right to be aggrieved about some of the things that he said um, not just about the club but about him um, you know he's it started all started last year didn't after the BT comments about Mike yes. saying yeah. um, you know he, he didn't really like playing in them final seven years eight years in his career he couldn't wait to retire while picking up 
£120,000 a week, which she uh, tweeted out the video today, the interview on BT Sport. Um, I mean, just reading, you know, a bit from the book, you know, um, Owen says about Shearer, um, the more I think about it, the more I understand why Alan behaves the way he does, and continues to spread negativity about me whenever he can. He was brought into, into St. James Park as the saviour, the local boy. Could have been a great story, but he failed and Newcastle United were relegated. I mean, that's going to... The relegation hurt Alan Shearer, so Michael oh, Owen knows exactly what he's doing Absolutely. There. I mean, yeah, that that is kicking Alan where it hurts. Listen, let's go back to when Michael Owen came as a player and Alan was in his final season. There was no one, no one more delighted that Michael Owen was going to be pulling on the black and white shirt than his erstwhile strike partner. Alan Shearer thought it was a fantastic idea, and it was. They weren't close friends, but, of course, they were England strikers together. They shared a love of horse racing, mm. although I think Alan, unlike Michael, preferred football to the turf. And, of course, the other thing, Alan, being a, a, a Newcastle-obsessed sportsman, was delighted that one of the best strikers in Europe, we thought at the time, was coming to, was coming to the club. He thought it would be in safe hands. Let's go forward a few years when, you know, that horrible season when, when you know, Joe Kinnear, everything, everything happening with the um, Ashley, of course, and uh, and Alan eventually coming in as manager. We know it didn't work out for him. Alan would be the first to admit he didn't do a brilliant job. Clearly, that was self-evident. But, um, you know, to, to say that, I think, is a bit unfair. What Alan Chiwa did do in those, in those few games in charge, though he didn't win many games... He brought a, a, a little bit of gravitas back to the job. I remember in press conferences he'd always wear, wear his suit, shirt and tie. And he restored a little bit of discipline to the club, you know, effectively banishing Joey Barton. And, uh, of course, on, on the pitches where it really matters. And it didn't, it didn't happen for him there. But he wanted, he looked at Michael and he wanted to see that sense of commitment in him, the same commitment that he had. And, and, and he never got it. And, you know, since then, the relationship has deteriorated. Mike Malone responded to Alan Shearer today, um, and I'm just going to read the tweet out and mm. get your take on it because obviously you were you were yeah. working at the time with, mm-hmm. and you kind of might know or give us a bit of insight into that. Um, so he says, "Not sure you are as loyal to Newcastle as you make out, mate. I distinctly remember you being inches away from signing for Liverpool after Sir Boy Robson put you on the bench. You tried everything to get out." Right, that will have, that will have struck a raw nerve. Alan, the previous year, had heard that. Bobby had considered selling him to Liverpool. I think there'd been discussions with Gerard Houllier at the time. Alan Shearer would have been furious about that. Now, that was that was a, a horrible season at Newcastle again when they finished fifth. <laughs> oh, to finish fifth again. People who, your younger audience would be saying, horrible season, finishing fifth. But it started off with the partisan Belgrade um, defeating the Champions League qualifier when Alan Shearer missed a penalty. Uh, and then they lost two or three games. They lost a Birmingham tournament. They were really struggling badly. Bobby wasn't under threat then. But there, were, but there was murmurings of the relationship between the two of them, not as great as it as it had been. Remember, it had started off with with Alan scoring five goals in, in Bobby's home debut. And then, of course, we had the Marseille defeat... Uh, the Wolves game, when Newcastle failed to beat Wolves and uh, there was a lap of honour with only about five ten thousand 10,000 in the ground. 
that season Clivert came, which we all suspected and since been proved was it was a Freddie Shepherd signing rather than a Bobby one. But again, the Bob, the, the there was more talk of a fractious relationship between the pair. He was dropped for the game against Aston Villa on August the 29th, August 28th, 29th, when Clivert and Bellamy were the partnership. Newcastle lost that game 4-2. After four games, they had two points, two draws, two defeats. And then on the bank holiday Monday, uh, Bobby, Bobby was sacked. Now, Michael's tweet is presumably referring to the two days after the Aston Villa defeat and Bobby going, I would imagine, uh, whether Alan did ring, nobody knows but the pair. You know, maybe Alan did ring Michael and say, get me out of here, get me to Liverpool. I don't know. What I can say is if that relationship between Bobby and, and Alan at that time wasn't great, then, Alan, uh, then Bobby Robson's family would say now, that he has done far, far more to keep the name of Sir Bobby alive than Michael Owen has with his work for the foundation and, of course, his own foundation. And I know he is on very good terms with Lady Elsie and and, uh, and Bob, Bobby's sons. So, yes, let's not rewrite history and let's not, you know, gloss over what was a difficult relationship at that time. But, you know, if, if you had um, a member of the Robson family sitting here alongside us, they're speaking very glowing terms about Alan. Um, on to another ex- extract from the book. Um, Kieran, so let's talk about this blind delusion claim by Michael Owen. Um, he says the fans and the people who run the club believe it is 10% bigger than it is. This kind of blind delusion is especially true of Newcastle United, which as I reach for the, for the nearest tin hat is only a big club in the sense that it has a lot of fans in a big stadium. Historically, not successful off the pitch. Forget the FA Cups and what have you. But <laughs> in fact, quite the opposite mostly. And they've never won much in recent times. And it's a big club that pays £120,000 a week yeah. to strikers. And, and a nice PR boost yeah. for his book. Yeah, it's back to our previous point about how many clubs would have been able to afford that. And, you know, it says it all that it took so long for Newcastle to break their transfer record again when they after they signed them. But, yeah, I think, to be honest... Um, you know, having worked outside the northeast, I do know people who would share his view wrongly. Who you've seen it with Rio Ferdinand over the years. You've seen it with certain pundits. They don't really get Newcastle and what, why it is a big club. Um, because they look at the the figures. I you know when's the last time they they won a, a first division title and and things like that. But I think it's only really when you come up here that you you should understand it. And it probably says it all that. Even when he was up here, he didn't understand it because um, I think any player who comes here, particularly from abroad, they're they're immediately struck by why it is such a unique club. Um, and I, I think it's a poor reflection again on him that the penny didn't drop for him that while Newcastle weren't competing for Champions Leagues or Premier League titles necessarily, he still couldn't see the, the tradition and the the other aspects of the club that make it what it is. And um, that, that is a shame, you know. Because uh, he's he's coming out there and putting that out when you know there've been plenty of signs over the years who've thought the opposite. You mentioned that you worked in the northwest before you came up to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. Michael Owen loves to go on about loyalty, and yet he did what most Liverpool fans would <laughs> put as a number one 
do not do on that you know on the on the list and that was joining Manchester United. Well, this is it as well. It's kind of <laughs> with him how you're looking at the market for this book and Liverpool fans are quite aggrieved when he went to Man United. Man United fans don't look at him particularly fondly apart from maybe that derby goal um, against Man City at the, the last minute. Um, Real Madrid fans aren't really going to buy this. It's the, the most explosive stuff is about Newcastle United so it's quite telling that that's been the hook really because the first day something's serialised it's always telling which club it refers to and it's Newcastle so as much as he doesn't look back fondly on his time here it's it's going to help him earn a few quid not that he necessarily needs it but it, it does leave a bit of a bitter taste I think for supporters when he's going on like this when sure you have to put your own side of the story out but when you look back so begrudgingly on that time and how you hated the final years of your career it is odd we must mention that he does say some positive things about the club however <laughs> you know it's largely <laughs> negative it's yeah. largely trying to wind up certain people I would argue um, it is a, a fascinating read yeah. um, just your general summarising of, of, of what hey, you've no, read of on, it on that point I'll keep, I'll keep guilty of thinking Newcastle are 10-20% bigger than, than people in London you know on, on my sports desk I, I will tell them look this club is huge I'll say the same you know that Sunderland are far bigger than people realise I, I don't know if, if uh, listeners are aware of the start Newcastle over the last 30 years have the biggest attendances in the whole of you of any club that's not won anything in those three decades. Sunderland have the biggest average attendances for any club which hasn't qualified for Europe in those 30 years. So, you know, that's a unique selling point, the North, the North East. You know, we, we, we've got the passion, you know. Sadly, we haven't got the success. But Mike, Mike Lowen saw the fanaticism of the fans and, yes, he wants to, wants to sell, sell, the, sell the book, but I think it's treating him with a whole lack of respect. It leaves an unsavoury taste, to be honest. Just finally, a question to both of you. About Mike Lowen's uh, belief that it was stepping down, that he was low on his level, mm. the fact that no one wanted to come in for him suggests that he had nowhere else to go. And I mean, is that... Yes, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, no one could clearly, if he was looking at those wages, then very, very few clubs in, in Europe, let alone in, uh, this country, would be able to afford him. Yes, he is stepping down. When, you, when you're leaving Real Madrid, <laughs> you are stepping down, really. The, you know, that unless you go to Barcelona, Manchester United and Liverpool. Um, but, as, as I said, he was going to a club where he'd be 50,000 plus crowds, he'd be getting a mega salary, and he was playing with the greatest centre-forward English football of the, of, the, of the Premier League era. So it wasn't, he, he wasn't exactly going to be slumming it, was he? I think that challenge of what, you know, a fit and firing Michael Owen to potentially put Newcastle back in a title race. I mean, mm. that, that is an amazing challenge as well that I'm sure was put to him before he signed that, you know, you can help us finally end that drought or try and end that drought. And he obviously didn't take to it, but he didn't fancy yeah. it. Do you know something? We only got two interviews, the, the, the press corps as a collective. We only got two sit-downs with, with Michael Owen in all that time he was here. And... He, he was a very much a what I would call an arm's length footballer. Mm. You know, he never embraced the region. He never, you know, we, we all know about the helicopter and, and, and things like that. But you never felt as if he was part of the culture. He sucked in the culture and, and enjoyed the, the way of life up here. He does mention the helicopter and the book. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
he refutes the idea that he was always on it. He says it was more for his family travelling up. And he landed it at the training ground for a day. Um, there's loads more that I don't think has been covered this morning in, in the in the, the various serializations. Yeah. So it is worth it a read. Whether, whatever you think about Michael on it is certainly uh, a grip and read. We'll move on from uh, Michael's book and we'll head into current day Newcastle United. We were all there on Saturday mm-hmm. in what was a, not the best of games. It's James's Park as Newcastle drew 1-1 with Watford. Ian, uh, just summarise what, what you saw. Was it uh, two points dropped? I think if you're playing the, the bottom club and you fail to beat them on home soil, you've got to say that. Having said that, if you go behind after 78 seconds then and you see the the mess that 35 minutes of the first half were, you would probably have taken a point. It It is still too early in the season. I mean... People who know me know I'm I'm a good friend of Steve Bruce. I like the man. I'm desperate for him to succeed. That doesn't make me a a, a pro Ashley, by the way. Uh, If you'd had me in after the Arsenal game, I I would have come up with one verdict. If you'd had me after the Norwich game, it would be a much, much worse one. A much more upbeat one after Spurs. If you ask me now, very ambiguous. I was a little bit worried at half-time. There didn't seem to be too many ideas. Second half, I was encouraged. I think there was some pretty decent performances in that Newcastle side. They were unlucky not not to win it on chances created. Having said that, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about Rafa here. I think the the closing five ten minutes were very different to the Rafa Benitez era, when Rafa would have stressed to, to the team, "If you're not going to win a game, make sure you don't lose it." Now Newcastle. Very rarely looked as if they were going to lose it when they couldn't win it under him. They did look as if they could lose it this time because they were trying to win it. I, I don't think it was a case of consolidating for the point. You know, Newcastle were still very open and if it wasn't for Dubravka and a very a fortuitous deflection, they, they could have lost it. But in, uh, I know some of my colleagues are a little more pessimistic than I am. Uh, I like the look of Gillington. Uh, I, I think... You know, getting back to the the Hayden Longstaff partnership in the middle uh, is is good. The back the back look as pretty solid, despite what I said there when they were chasing game. But as a unit, they look good. Although Fernandez is desperately unfortunate not to, not to make that starting lineup because he's he's a super player. The one player I'm worried about is Armon. I think he is missing Rafa. Uh, he is a little bit of a headless chicken of a player there is no doubt about it he sparked a revival last season his blistering pace puts the fear of god into opponents and he can make a mess of the best organized defenses because of his speed but he there was a time i think in the first half today two teammates you could hear them say where the hell is he going he he i think he needs direction and uh it's no good giving him a free roll i think he, he he needs a little more a little more direction in games. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think Bruce did try and give him that direction um, going back to the start of the season when he's playing that three-five-two, and all the training sessions were geared towards Almiron playing higher up the pitch and a two-man strike force, but it wasn't working. He was having, he was by instinct coming deep to get involved with play, and I think the shift to you know that three-four-two-one now has been a lot better in the sense that. It's allowing him to pick up those positions he did under Benitez last season, and for me, that's where he's at his best. I don't think it's any good having him um, 
trying to play as a striker because that's never been his game. I think getting him out wide, cutting in is, is where he's at his best. The encouraging thing for me, yes, he's gone eight months now without a goal, so it's November is the last time he scored, but um, his head isn't going down. And for such an emotional player, who, you know, we've seen cry um, on the pitch a few times since he joined. I think at least there is that. But yeah, it, it, for me, when he signed, I was more worried about the physicality of the Premier League, how he'd handle that. But it, that's not really been the case. It's been more he's just snatching at chances and he's you know I think people have said he's been a goal scorer but you look at his time in MLS he would score in bursts so he'll you know get five and ten but then go maybe 16 games without a goal and maybe you're seeing that now and you can see why a lot of the staff and teammates feel that once he gets that first goal he'll be up and running he's kind of a purple patch kind of player so I think that's one to watch I, I do genuinely believe you know he's, he's not going to be dropped I think he'll keep going until he scores because you can see particularly in that Spurs game right until the end the shift he puts in um, and you're looking at who would come in instead of him right now and you're thinking certainly for the Liverpool game there isn't really an outstanding candidate so I thought the, the most worrying moment of Saturday's match Kieran wasn't so much that that miss in the fourth minute or even when he chose to hit it first time from the absolute pullback in the second half. Yeah. I thought it was a moment when he was um, when he's called offside. Yeah. For somebody with his pace, why do you have to be even level? Why do you try and steal a yard with an opponent or even be level? He should be a yard back knowing he can give somebody a yard start and easily beat them over 30 yards. Yeah. And, you know, you need to think more. And, you know, as I, as I said before, it's this headless chicken before he needs to use his head a little bit more because if he does, then he, he's, he's got everything. Yeah, because I think it's easy to forget his debut, having had two weeks pre-season in Atlanta, that was an amazing debut. You know, he, he hit the post then. Against he, arguably the worst side in Premier League history in, who were reduced to 10 men. In terms know? of you could see yes, what he was going to bring to the table. Yes, yeah, you could. I, I think And he it, did bring it to the table in his first... It is first. first you yes. can see what he did for Perez yes. and Rondon, and it's a new strike partnership with uh, Joe Linton, and indeed mm-hmm. whether it's Atsu or Sam Maximin, these are players he's getting familiar with. So, mm-hmm. I think it, it. You know, he's been at the club eight months, but maybe it's come Christmas that we really judge him again. Um, but he does need that goal. <laughs> you mentioned the defense there. Mm. Um, in a five, it's all you know. It looks it looks good, mm. but. My one worry is that when you, if he ever does have to switch back to a four-man defence, I do feel I don't feel the cells is as strong in a two. I don't think Dummett would be overly comfortable yeah. playing as the other centre back. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because then there may come a point in the season where he does need, need to change it around. Yes, the, the, there might be. I mean, you, you mentioned you mentioned Dummett and the cells there. The one most people actually Andrew mentioned is Shaw saying he's better in a, in a three than two. I was out at the Nations Cup and I saw him play for Switzerland and he, he looked good in the two as well. Listen, I think if, if Steve Bruce was going to change that into a four, he might have done it after the Norwich game. He didn't. He tinkered further up the field and he, he kept with the three. Um, I he, Look, he's got great, great options. Great, great options. How when long he, have we waited for that to say that as well about the centre-backs? You know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when you, you, you think about it, you know, Fernandez is an outstanding player who last season was Newcastle's player of the half season up to December. Kieran Clark has never let anyone down. He's still got Lejeune coming back and he could be back around about, you know, November time. I mean, what a dilemma you've got there. Again, you know, in, in the, the full-back situation, Mankio has suddenly 
I think most fans would be pleasantly surprised how he's he started in pre-season and and uh, Willems thought had a very good game the other day. Kraft after a nightmare debut at Norwich hasn't looked too bad. So you know there are huge options there. I can't see uh, in the short or medium term the the team changing from a three at the back. You see, I'm going to argue there because uh, I've heard quite a few people say Williams had a, had a good game, but I yeah. I didn't think defensively was all that. I I, I still think yeah. there's a lot to improve, and of course he is only starting. Yeah. But I I wasn't overly convinced by what right. I saw again. Um, and again, it is a case that he's going to develop and get used to the Premier League, but. Um, for someone who's got to replace Matt Ritchie yeah. and the work rate and effort he puts in and, and it always delivers, it's, it is a big step up. And um, I, say, I know it's early days, but I, I wasn't as overly convinced as others seem to be with, with the performance on Saturday. I think going forward is what probably call our eyes, mm. for me anyway, the, the running and the, the crossing he has. I think, yeah, defensively, he's still still getting used to it a bit. And you can see Bruce often is having to pass on instructions to him. But then it is... I think even in the three weeks since that Arsenal game, you can see he is getting better. And he's, like most players, he's one of those players you feel that the more games he plays in a row, the more he gets used to it. And with Richie being out for two months, I think it's important you almost settle on one player to come in and just have a run there. And he's going to have that opportunity now for the best part of six weeks. So, um, yeah. I think it's one to watch but he's got so much experience already at 25 you think of the caps he's had for the netherlands he's played in two different leagues and adapted so i, I think he's a lot to bring to the table but it is one to, to watch i think we hope you've enjoyed this episode so far just a quick reminder to please subscribe and review to our podcast through itunes spotify or whichever podcast provider you listen through Let's talk about John Joe Shelby. I think the last time you were in, we discussed Shelby because he was in a similar position, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, a man with, you know, no one's questioning his ability, but he, again, can't get into that starting 11. It doesn't look like he's going to in, in the future weeks because Hayden yeah. and Longstaff work so well together. What what does the future hold for uh, John Joe Shelby and Newcastle United? It, it was Kieran and I who spoke to him after, after the Leicester game last week, and I think speak for both of us we were astonished by just how frank and open he was yeah. and afterwards we, t- we told the other lads we've spoken to him and there were so many lines he came out with it was, it was, it was a very very revealing and honest and articulate interview mm. uh, and he himself says I would not pick I would not pick me for the, for the, for the game against Watford we've, we've had situations like this before right down the years, remember you know when Glenn Hoddler was with England, they couldn't fit him into the side. Uh, with England again, should Ericsson have persisted with, with uh, what, what do you call them, Lampard and Gerrard, and then he he put skulls out on the left. So it is it about systems or is it about players? The start of Newcastle's season would suggest it has more to do with systems. Clearly, Hayden. Is more comfortable in a two. Uh, I was at Carrow Road and he was forced out wide far too much, out of position, and he didn't look comfortable there, although he was one of Newcastle's two half-decent performers. Again, Longstaff. Longstaff, I think he had a pretty traumatic opening 45 minutes against Watford, and it's to his immense credit he, he came through that. And uh, when he looked at substitution waiting to happen at half-time, but, you know, I think he showed some, some great character. He's more comfortable in the two. The, the, the pair enjoy playing alongside each other. I think John Joe Shelby has, is going to have a role as an impact sub right now because 
I can't see how you could you could fit fit him in the team really at the moment. It was almost quite telling though that he, he didn't come on against Watford. It was mm. as if Bruce felt oh that might leave Newcastle even more open. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I think what he brings to the table, no other midfielder can do. Um, the the thing with him, and it's always been the case, is the consistency that it can't just be one in four games. He he pulls out you know a brilliant through ball. It's that being able to do that more regularly. I I personally don't think the work rate is is as big an issue as it's sometimes played. Um, you know, you look at this summer. He was one of the first back in days after the the Fulham win. He was in Dubai doing warm weather training. He is really committed to Newcastle, and he knows, as he said, he's effectively playing for a new contract. So, I think when he does come back in, you will see a good performance from him. And I was telling, you know, at the Leicester game when he did start, he was the captain. Yeah, we'll all remember it for that penalty, which. You know, could have happened to anyone. Let's be honest. I didn't but, think it was the worst penalty. No, in the world. He, he came he, out and said it was. A he t- did. Yeah, he <laughs> no, but, and I was like thinking, like, I've seen a lot worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I suppose that puts that's his frame of mind, isn't it? At the moment, that he's he's almost focusing on any little error he does, and whether that works in his favour ultimately be interesting. I think. I think Kieran, the reason he didn't come on was because Bruce didn't think Atsu and Kraft, who've had limited pre-seasons, could last 90 minutes. And also Shaw mm. uh, was ill. Dizziness, yeah. And, uh, and so, again, he said he had to keep he had to keep that option open in case, in case he, he deteriorated. I suppose if you felt game. you had a match winner you'd, and you were going for it, as we've said, yeah. you might think, oh, yeah. Yeah. throw him on for 20 yeah. minutes but yeah. it's not a slide on him I'm just saying you know mm-hmm. in a game where that was so much on a knife edge those last 20 minutes yes. he he felt he didn't put him in and perhaps that's a bit telling I don't know well maybe when it's nil nil down a few with 20 minutes yeah. ago he might throw him on yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, on to Steve Bruce then Ian like you say um, you're good pals with him how has he found um the criticism of late, it has, has, has a cha- did it shock him? I think it stung. I think he nobody likes criticism, and you, you know he 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 is a she is a cliche a proud Geordie, and he was desperate for this job this, on this occasion. And yes, it it's been hard. I think he was prepared for some of it, uh, but yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. It it's been hard for him. Uh, it, people say. Oh, you're close to him. What's it like? And I remember when uh, when John Carver was was the Newcastle manager. I was at school with John, and uh, people think, oh, it must be fantastic when uh, when uh, someone who is a friend becomes a manager. It is if they win. John didn't win much, uh, you know. It was great for for Steve last week after Spurs. You know, hey, listen, winning dictates everything, and uh, they know we've got jobs to do, and our jobs are made so much easier if if the team's doing well. He seems very aware of the fact though, that the only thing that's going to work here is results. You yeah. know, he knows he's not Rafa Benitez. He mm. knows a large portion of the fans don't agree with his, his appointments. Yeah. The accusations have been a yes man. Yeah. But he seems to realise that actually, yes, and look, I know I've got to win. You know, results are why we're in this business. Absolutely, I, I think. The, one of the things which he, he thinks that the, the, the minute CI has been magnified, not his words, by the way. And uh, I think after the, the Spurs game, he was made aware of, of comments that, oh, well, he only won because he adopted Rafa's tactics. Now, clearly, by reverting to the, the two central midfielders, which we've discussed earlier in the podcast, that did help. But I don't think it's very fair on him because, let's face it, 
if that was if it had been Rafa in charge, would Jalinton have been playing? Would Matt Ritchie still have been at the club? You know, there was a lot of a lot of talk. Would Hayden still have been at the club? So, so you know, that that was a performance which owed a lot to the good habits that Rafa Benitez instilled in his side with the, these never-ending drilling sessions he used to have in coaching. It was also a victory for Steve Bruce as well. And Steve Bruce deserves enormous credit for setting up his team on that day for, let's face it, bringing on Atsu uh, so early. Now, you could say there was an element of luck there because Atsu might might have been might have stayed on the bench had uh, St. Maximin not been injured. But, you know, it was a gamble to bring on somebody who barely played and, and he turned out to be a, a decisive figure in the game. Was Bruce upset with those comments that, oh, you only won because it was Rafa's tactics, it was the players remembering what they'd been... I, I, think, I think it was more a shake of the head rather than a, rather than unable to sleep <laughs> type reaction. Kieran, um, do you think, you know, if he, if he just started, he goes on a winning run, you know, he's already had a better start than Rafa did last year. Um, the fans will start to kind of the title start turning and, and they'll accept that you know he is what Newcastle have got and you know you've got to back your manager and, and give him a, a, a you know a, a fair start fair in, chance in theory yeah I think he saw after the Spurs game those vocal critics online again it's a, it's it's just a really loud minority it seems at times um, you know the people who a lot of the fans don't necessarily have the issue with Bruce. It's with the regime. I think it's always important to separate the two. But equally, you look at it and you think the crowd was down again against Watford and whatever about the opening day boycott. I think that was more worrying for me and that um, it's a prolonged protest that's that's really effective. You look at the Lees' end, you look around mm-hmm. the ground, you can see the pockets and it's been a really effective protest. And when you're having that issue uh, for a game um, against Watford, you know, crowd compared to last season like more than 5,000 down that's surely ringing alarm bells for the club um, I think Bruce has just got to as I said before cocoon himself insulate himself and you know he he felt he had to come out fighting when Chopper of all people um, was having a go he obviously had the last laugh with that result against Spurs but I think going forward now it's he's well aware that it's just about getting results and the performances have been good I think the encouraging thing is the the spirit against um, in that week after Norwich, uh, you know that Norwich game on the worst yeah, I've seen. Yeah. Um, the team just looks so amateur. Yet the setup, the organisation against Spurs was was magnificent to execute a game plan like that on that stage. And then you had um, responding to uh, two deflected goals, both against Leicester and Watford, that really shook the team. So I think there's a lot to take into that international break now. And you're you're looking at the Liverpool game. Obviously, it's a it's really daunting game but you know that they can go in and put in a decent performance on their day but that Brighton one for me is the big one um, I think we saw against Watford the the issue when Newcastle have more of the ball than maybe they're used to and they're having to break down a, a team it's not easy Brighton are going to come here and they're obviously going to have their own game plan they like to get on the ball but you you have to start turning those draws into wins eventually yeah. of, of course Steve Bruce would have loved to come, come here and the fans chanting his name in the Arsenal game and, and everyone to say, what a wonderful appointment. Of course he'd like that. But what was more of a priority for him? Much more of a priority. And this is not a slight in the fans. He would have been concerned about the reaction inside the dressing room after Rafa Benitez, a manager hugely respected by the playing staff, left. Now, he was very, very encouraged by that. He had an instant rapport with players, including 
the, the influential figures in the team who have come out and said they like the man, they respect the man. And I think that was very, very important to Steve Bruce. And I think we've seen after the, the Norwich game when, let's face it, there were murmurings saying, are they are they listening to him? Do they, do they sing off the same hymn sheet? I think the performance at Spurs gave a few answers there. They like Steve Bruce. Now, liking doesn't always equate to thinking of a good manager, but I think all the soundings from inside the dressing room about the new manager are positive. Let's just ask yourself about the attendance. Mm. Uh, just over 44,000. Yeah. Did that shock you? Uh, as someone who remembers when 20,000 was a good crowd in, <laughs> in the in the uh, early 80s, I remember a game against Shrewsbury when there were you know, 12, 13,000 here. And, and I remember... Uh, I was, I was playing Saturday afternoon football, coming back and seeing the pink in the plate. I think it was 1982, seeing the plate uh, Derby and won. And I thought, oh, that's a good crowd. They've got 18,000 today. So everything's relative. Uh, it didn't shock me in that before the season started, I remember talking to my brother who was a, a leading light and supporter for change back in the, in the early 90s. And he himself said that to have an effect it would have to be under 40,000. Now, the first game was 47,000 officially, round about 44 unofficially. Again, the crowd on Saturday, I expected about 46. So, yes, it was a little less than I thought, but 44 is a concern rather than embarrassing for the club. I think I've got those words right because, you know, you know I can understand the people who stay away. I can empathise with them. I can empathise with the people who come to the games. You know, it. I don't want Newcastle United to become a Brexit issue between Remainers and Leavers. You know, yeah. and and it 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 is a it is a fan base divided in many respects. You know, divided in what methods to use to get your message across. Divided in the in, in your contempt or otherwise for, for for the board. So, I don't think we'll get uh, we'll we'll get back to fifty two thousand for several weeks if at all. I pray that we do because that means Newcastle United are winning. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's an awful... I think what a lot of the boycotters forget is just how big this fan base of this club is. I think a lot of people forget. I, I believe, Percy, let's forget uh, that in Britain, take off Manchester United, Liverpool, Celtic and Rangers, I think Newcastle is quite possibly the fifth biggest fan base yet with Arsenal. I think it's bigger than Manchester City, Chelsea and Tottenham. Just my, pers my personal view. Therefore, I think it is a perfectly reasonable statement to say, I think 20,000 fans have boycotted, but the reservoir of people coming in is so huge that 10,000 replace them. So Newcastle, there will always be people to replace many of the, many of the dissenters because it's such a huge club. You know, this isn't a, a city club. It's not even a regional club. This, this, this Newcastle is not quite in the Manchester United or the Liverpool Bay, but... It, you know, it's it's a it's a national club. There are thousands and thousands of Newcastle fans who live many many miles away from the River Town. Let's talk about Rafa Benitez and and kind of first of all the issues that Steve Bruce may find with his team and the similarities that Rafa may be found. I think mm. you mentioned it there when they've got the ball, um, they don't really sometimes look like they know what to do with it because they've got so much of it and yeah. you know, they are used to kind of uh, having less possession than the opposition. And we saw 
especially in the first half on Saturday, Sean Longstaff was visibly frustrated with players in front of him because there was no movement. Um, yeah, pass sideways or backwards. Um, and it's kind of that lack of creativity. I don't know if you feel that because there was points last season where we saw it as well. There was a lack of creativity in that starting 11 and a Benitez. And it seems like Bruce, because the players are largely the same, is going to have to deal with with, a, with the same problem. Yeah, it's it, you can see he, in the ideal world he would like Newcastle playing the front foot at home. And I think it would have been interesting had that goal not got in in 78 seconds because they obviously had a game plan. But it was ripped up wasn't it um because you have to change how you approach it so i think they did look comfortable against spurs in the idea of playing on the counter against arsenal they're pretty happy for them to have the ball albeit they pressed as much as they could but as i said it they're going to come times it, it very quickly teams can work you out and know that if you like countering well we'll just let you have the ball and you, as you said you saw that a lot with benitez's team um where Teams would come in to frustrate and know that Newcastle weren't set up necessarily to dominate possession. And it has an effect on the terraces as well because if you're on the ball and the passes aren't quite happening, um, fans get frustrated as well. So it's it's a one to look at, I think, going forward when they are going to come up against teams who also like to counter. How can you make the most of the ball and, and enjoy that possession? I, th- I think at 30 minutes into the game, if, if the two of you remember... A fan near the press box stood up and shouted, "Where are the tactics, Bruce?" Now this was this uh, followed. I can't remember which defender punting it upfield and it aimlessly dropped into the goalkeeper's hands. Now that wasn't that wasn't his fault, but but he's always going to be, going to be tarnished with this this reputation as not a tactician. Tactician. Now he is succeeding a man who was the 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 ultimate tactician who micromanages a side incredibly. Now, I know this this quote that's been dug out from his days at Sunderland when, when Steve Bruce said, I don't do tactics. What was ignored was what he said after that, I do good players. Now, what he meant by that is clearly, you know, there is a degree of improvisation which every football team needs when, you, when you're on the ball. After all, if, you, if it's just purely about pre-patterned programmes and uh, with, with all the video analysis that teams do now, everyone would... Uh, everyone would, would be able to work things out. So there's always going to be a degree of improvisation. Yes, Newcastle may not be quite as well organised, but, you know, you, you know, I think Steve's record isn't as bad as many people make out. He, I've seen some good performances by Steve Bruce's teams at Hull and at Sunderland. At Birmingham, he had a half-decent team. He will be relying on, on, on players to express themselves probably a little bit more than Rafa did. I know this system, the three, four, two, one, he see he, he sees and I think it's a Steve Agnew idea, there's the two the, the two behind Jolinton, whether it's Arnon and Atsu or Saint Maximin, he sees them as two number tens interchanging. I think there will be that that freedom to express themselves there. You probably wouldn't have got that with Rafa. And so you you take your choice, you know, which is you know, time time will be the, the mm. ultimate judge of that. So let's just talk about a few players that have excelled. Um, is that the right word? Maybe under Steve Bruce, Atsu, one of them. Mm. Another cracking game against Watford. Um, yep. The reporter for the Watford Observer uh, said he was Newcastle's best player, in his opinion. And I wouldn't disagree. Jan Matt a very tough time. He, you know, I think it shows a test of character as well, the fact that um, 
during the summer, obviously, he was injured, but he's then seen Newcastle go out and spend £16 million on Hans at maximum. And he's probably sitting there thinking, well, you know, here I am, not even at the peak of my career, and you've brought in another person right to play right in my position. And yet, he's got his head down, he's got back to fitness, thrown on against Spurs after barely a pre-season, did brilliantly, comes up against uh, Watford, and again, shows that actually, when both of them are fit, there's a strong chance that he could he could take the fight to answer maximum and say this is this is my position. And the fact he came on against Leicester as well when I'm sure he was absolutely knackered and open for a rest when Richie pulls up. So yeah, for me it was one of the big stories of that Spurs game that he hadn't played since he was injured, so that's two months without any match fitness. And he came on, played through cramp and put in that good a performance. And again you've seen that in the Leicester and Watford games he has seems to have a bit about him and the confidence is there I think his end product something that has been lamented over the years at Newcastle but he swung in a couple of really good crosses for Almiron of course mm-hmm. um, against Watford and mm-hmm. at the moment you're thinking when Sa- Sam Maximum comes back in which we're thinking three five six weeks um that's a tough decision I, I think Gatsu it's his place almost to lose at the moment because he's been that good um, and his attitudes has always been spot on. So I, I, he's been one of the big stories. Matt Ritchie pulls up, you said there. I'm not sure <laughs> I might argue with that definition. <laughs> pulls up at A&E, uh, maybe is a better uh, sentence. Better put. Uh, you said you were impressed with Joel Linton, £40 million, big price tag. Yeah. He has looked impressive, but my one concern, and this isn't his fault, but he's, play, he has to, he's, he's dropping deep to win the ball. Yeah. And there was a, there was a time um, against Watford in the first half, he wins the ball. Um, and then there was no one in the box. And I think, again, it went to Watts and he puts the ball in. And he, he's obviously aiming for someone like Joe Linton to be there, mm-hmm. but he's not there because he's dropped deep to win the ball. And that, for me, is a little bit of a concern. Yeah, I, I remember when you came and uh, one of my colleagues, Craig Hope, saw my tips. I was hugely impressed. And I, I was at the St. Etienne game, equally impressed against Arsenal. I thought, that's not a bad debut. Could have scored. He faded as the game wore on but the game faded effectively went down to Norwich he visibly wilted after that miss it, and I thought it affected it affected him it was almost like he was wanting to come off and I was very concerned I actually pulled him out of my uh, fantasy team only for him to score the goal <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I made the same mistake week. yeah but again Spurs I thought he was immense uh, and, and I don't use that word lightly I thought tremendous game he took responsibility took his goal well of course uh, against Against Watford again, a you know I thought it was a seven out of ten performance. Yes, he did come too deep. We now can see why he's not a one and two or even a one and three goal scorer, and that is a concern. Uh, but what we've seen, and I think Ulysses would probably share this view, he will be an asset to Newcastle. And remember, 100%. he's tw- he's twenty two years old. He's twenty two years old. His fam- he's still living in a hotel. He'll get better. No worries about him. It was a brilliant moment um, when he wins the ball on the edge of the box deep in the second half. Watford won a, won a free kick. Their free says no. Gillinton carries on, sets Muto away. Um, Muto probably should have done better with that chance. Yeah. He hit the side net and I think he, his, his first touch took him a bit too wide or he should have hit it a, a lot earlier. But that moment there by Gillinton was fantastic. Yeah. Strength, calm on the ball and precision to set Muto down the wing. And, it, and it, like I say, he is, he's definitely going to be an asset for Newcastle. Yeah, and I think because he costs so much money and because he's the number nine, I think fans needed, more than any of the other signs, need to see those those signs and, and they've seen them and they've taken to him. And um, yes, the goal scoring is an issue when you think, you know, is he going to get you more than 10 this season? That's up for debate. But 
I think what he brings to the all-around team is is really noticeable already mm-hmm. and that's almost um, as important particularly in the modern game and what was noticeable against Watford particularly in the second half was any time they had a team move i.e. more than four or five passes he was the one who kick-started it by as you say and coming deep um, and the issue is of course who in the team can keep up with the play to get into the box that quickly and you're looking at Atsu and Almiron there but as we saw at Almiron you need him to then score the goals so that's something to watch going forward is, is having those supplementary guys who can chip in as well and you're not just relying on Rondon and Perez like it was last season you know beyond them it was Shar, wasn't it with, with four or five goals so I think Bruce with the system was looking at spreading it around that Longstaff for example could chip in that there'll be more of an even spread rather than one guy who gets 15 another 13 and then you're going all the way down to a centre half um, we're going to finish the end of the podcast talking about Bobby Robson uh, just before we do a final point about the weekend obviously Newcastle missing Matt, Matt Ritchie through injury pulled up according to you <laughs> no, um, I did mean it like that I swear. <laughs> um, and obviously he's a talker you can hear him yeah. you know he loves instructing people and I think that's a huge plus for Newcastle I love he's the heartbeat of the yeah. yeah and I love to see that now I my conclusion on Saturday one of my biggest worry was that there was just seemed to be a lack of communication it was so quiet in the ground that you should be able to hear people talking on the pitch and I mm. couldn't hear it and I know Richie's kind of a he's an exception because he's not just a talker he's, he's a shouter and you know you really can hear him he's but I Norky. Norky's is what this, the last call <laughs> and there was a moment when success should have scored um, and the ball comes in between uh, Manquillo and uh, Cher and Cher just shrugs his shoulders you know I, now we know he's feeling a little bit early a bit dizzy mm-hmm. so that might yeah. play into that yeah. but I didn't see Dubravka getting them by the scruff of the neck and saying why has he been allowed yes. to run free I didn't see Lascelles coming over point. and saying Come on, and I just feel if that had been Matt Rich on that pitch, he would have gone over and he would have made sure that that doesn't happen again. Kicked him up the backside. Yeah, and maybe I'm just looking Richard, into it a bit yeah. much, but your guys' thoughts on that lack of communication organisation? He would be one of the first names on the team sheet, heartbeat, heart and soul of the team. You know, yeah, everything you've said is right. He, he does drive them on, he never gives up, his attitude can never be questioned, and he's not a bad footballer into the bargain. Yeah, and for me, as good as a player as he is it's those those qualities we've touched on that make him as you say one of the first names on the team what I would say in football today you don't see many players who are old school like that who do shout and who do point fingers and sometimes it can work against you as well but yeah in, in a game like that where it was on the knife edge you could see maybe could one or two players and maybe just said you know keep your heads it's a very small gesture but sometimes players need to be reminded when you know you're naturally losing concentration when you're so knackered I think we saw Hayden against uh, Leicester at half time you know he pulled Muto aside and said you've got to be doing this you've got to be doing that and we saw Richard doing that as well in the first half against Leicester to yeah. Williams where he was saying he was kind of playing himself out of position to make sure Williams knew where, what, where, what he was doing um, who's going to step up do you think in that case you know is that now a chance for Hayden to step up or Longstaff in, in, in quite who? possibly but you know Lascelles is good cap- yeah. captaincy material as well, and uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think Hayden is is uh, becoming a more and more influential. You need, you need more than you one do. captain on the pitch. You, you need yeah, you need eleven captains. Is yeah. yeah. um, On to uh, Sir Boy Robson then. Uh, Twenty years this week um, since he was unveiled mm-hmm. as Newcastle manager. Press conference was the third of September nineteen ninety nine. Came into a club which was in disarray. Yeah, uh, Rude Hullet had uh, lost the time with Derby. Resigned shortly after. 
had left out uh, key players out of his starting eleven. I spoke to Rob Lee the other day and he said we had a reserve team versus a first team and the reserve team was better than the first yeah, team. And that yeah. kind of sums up what Sir Bobby found when he, he walked into Newcastle United on that, that day. Yeah, that's right. I remember 12 months earlier, it had been between Bobby Robson and... and uh, so, Sorry, no, it was between Bobby Robson and Kenny Daglish for the job after Kevin Keegan went. Then, of course, we had the inverted commas, sexy football of um, of uh, Ruth Hullet, which became rather premature. And when, when Bobby came, you know, it, it was almost like a coronation. He'd, uh, he, he was waiting for the call on. I remember there were rumours of Bobby Robson saying, oh, he's, he's not the same as he, as he was. He's, he's an old man. His, mem- his memory's going and all that. And the press conference uh, at St. James's Park it was remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable because he was full of ideas, full of zest, enthusiasm, passion. These are words which we all identify with, with the great man. And we had reams and reams of notes back then. I think the first dictaphones were out. I think the press conference lasted 25, 30 minutes. And I was working for the journal at the time. And out of the sports desk, one of my colleagues was out at Durham Cricket in the south. I think Sunday the Middlesbrough press conferences. So I was there on my own, so I knew I'd have lots and lots of work. I think it was a Friday. It was a Friday, so Saturday journal, lots and lots of pages to fill. I come in with a thick notebook, ready to tell the sports center. Oh, I give you back page story. I give you two spreads and a few sidebars, etc. Suddenly, uh, a girl from Features comes over. And said Ian. He said, um, he said we need that. Uh, we need that holiday review uh, for for the paper tomorrow. I said, well, I'm sorry, you can't. Say, oh, well, we need it. We need it today. We need it urgently. So before I could get cracking with all my Bobby Robson stuff, I had to do 500 words on there on my family's trip to Disney World. That <laughs> Was it a worthy review? Eh? Was it a worthy review? I think you'll have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he is a man who, you know, still remembers even 10 years after his death. Um, you speak to former players um, and they're just not a bad word to say about him. And Alan Shearer credits him with turning his career around oh, in Newcastle yeah. because if it wasn't Sir Bobby had come in and Hullet had stayed you know he would likely would have gone most certainly probably would have gone but then it also required a man to get the confidence back flowing and get him playing with a, a smile on his face absolutely uh, my proudest moment in relation to Bobby was I persuaded him to be a guest speaker at St Cuthbert's uh, old school uh, old, old boys dinner at the at the at, at the assembly rooms in Newcastle and Bobby it, be, it was a few months after he'd been sacked and he said do you think people will want me I said, Bobby of course they want you and he was so hurt and it was his first first time he'd done this thing since since his sack again the, he was nervous anyway I remember him coming and putting he was on top table and he walked into the room 500 old boys singing one Bobby Robson walking along singing a song living in a Robson one lad and I looked and he had tears in his eyes and I had tears in my eyes it was just a, a wonderful wonderful moment and in in many ways Bobby became did become more popular afterwards I think a lot of fans will be it's ashamed to a motive word maybe not to have walked out on that day we mentioned earlier the Wolves game when when uh, the fans decided to turn their back on the team for the crime of finishing fifth, although there were a lot of mitigating circumstances at the time, they'd just not been knocked out of the UEFA Cup semi-finals by Marseille, 
but over those days now, over a fifth place finish now. And listen, Bobby's legacy with the foundation is wonderful. The memories everyone has are great. We're talking about him now with the same enthusiasm and passion we did back then. And, and, and it's remarkable that that's two decades ago when he walked through the doors. You mentioned the press conference. I just yeah. want to ask you if you remember, because there's a picture of him hanging in air with a brown handkerchief and he's waving it. That was that was that before the Sheffield Wednesday match when he walked out. No, that that's oh. that's actually in the in his press conference on the day of the unveil. And now I asked right. George Colkin if he knew because um, George was you know really good friends when he wrote a yeah. as well. And George yeah. George couldn't come up with a definite answer. He thinks it might be in relation to Barcelona fans waving the handkerchiefs. Right. Um, but it's 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 uh, one of those I don't I couldn't work out what it was. I have no it was. idea, but I could always remember that Bobby always had matching ties and handkerchiefs, and the the the, the handkerchief in, in his top. Uh, top pocket was always perfectly perfectly folded <laughs> always very smart wasn't yeah, it um yeah. you Keon, you wrote, wrote a book on Jose Mourinho um mm. and obviously Saboy played such an important role in, in in kind of shaping his career yeah and we discussed it on a very good podcast not so long ago but yeah it's I think if you ever want to we we know how important he's to this region and to Newcastle's history but you can go so many places in Europe and see the impact he made there in a very short space of time. It wasn't like he was on the continent for that long, but you talk to any Barcelona fans. Um, when I've spoken to people who worked higher up in Barcelona, when you speak to former Barcelona players, it's the same things coming in, how uh, you know universal football is. You see that through the prism of Sir Bobby Robson. And yeah, Jose Mourinho right to this day has, has never forgotten. Um, despite all the great success he's had over the years, he's never forgotten where it all started. And it's one of, in my opinion, football's great stories, that journey he went on uh, by Sir Bobby's side for, for so many years at three different clubs. And uh, yeah, it's 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 remarkable. Just to finish, Ian, then, um, your favourite memory of Sir Bobby at Newcastle United? Favourite memory would be on the plane back from by Leverkusen when Newcastle won. I think Shearer and Bellamy were suspended and uh, Amiobi and Luar Luar got the goals. And uh, Newcastle, it was the Champions League second stage and a great win. And it was Bobby's birthday and uh, the press on the plane back, uh, there was a cake provided for him and I think we presented with presents and it was just this wonderful, wonderful atmosphere on the play Newcastle won a Champions League game Bobby seemed immortal at the time he was at his strongest most popular time at Newcastle and uh, yeah I, I can just picture the scene and that uh, in the cabin and how happy everyone was fantastic can it's a bit of a self promotion but I have that article I mentioned with Rob Lee and Warren Barton you can find that on our website it is in my opinion it's an excellent read but oh. it captures it captures the mood wonderfully and Let's say those three players and uh, Mark Robson as well. So Bobby Sum just spoke about the pride of the man yeah. um, taking the job, and that was that was instant to see. Well, listen, you mentioned George Colkin, a good friend and colleague of ours. If that, I think that book's still in publication. If anyone wants more, I'm sure buy that excellent book. Most certainly. I'm going to finish then, just because you mentioned um, kind of a link to this. It's about. Um, one of Sir Bobby's most famous quotes, and we're going to finish it off in there because I think uh, it sums it up nicely. If you are a fantastic painter, you're never rich until you are dead. I think it's the same with managers. You never appreciate it until you're gone. And uh, I think that kind of sums it up very nicely. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for popping in. Pleasure. 
Um, uh, thank you very much for listening. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast, whichever platform you do listen through. This has been the Everything is Black and White podcast. Yeah.